0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners, The following podcast is a presentation by Carla Firstman, Director of Redress. Thank you very much, and it's really great to be here. And before getting anywhere near starting, I really want to thank you, Guy. Thank you for all the support that you've given me. And thank you also for the flexibility one because I was working a little bit perhaps on whilst I was doing uh, the thesis, but also because I was also just just an NGO person and somehow trying to <laughs> to make my way in the ac- academic world, which um, proved to be challenging on a number of fronts um, My thesis was on international organizations in the broad sense, uh, looking at remedies and reparation um, against international organizations for breaches of human rights and humanitarian law. I thought for this presentation that I would limit... Myself a little bit uh, looking at the issue of peacekeeping because in a way it's a good lens through which you can see the challenges uh, in this very complicated sphere. Um, I came to this topic both through my work at Redress looking at reparations but also from some of my work with um, basically post-conflict situations in Rwanda and Bosnia and uh, seeing how international organisations impacted on the lives of actual people. Um, and throughout throughout the presentation and my thesis as a whole, one, one of the things which kept... Uh, making me question which is uh, what what should we be looking for small fixes or fundamental changes and I think what I came to the conclusion was that if we focus on the small fixes then we're really only going to get small solutions and that actually the problems are quite fundamental um, With respect to peacekeeping, obviously the roles of peacekeeping has changed significantly, but the accountability framework has not kept up. Um, The accountability framework, we have the draft articles on the responsibility of international organizations, which recognize that international organizations are responsible for breaches attributable, uh, attributable to them. Um, There's an obligation to pay reparations, to make reparations. It's both a procedural and a substantive obligation. Um, But it's state-centric in its conceptualization. Individuals who are not affiliated with the organizations um, are not really considered by the text. And in fact... With respect to most mechanisms, whether they're administrative frameworks or other kinds of mechanisms for reparations, individuals have very little recourse before international organizations when they've come to a problem. Um, the administrative systems that are in place are extremely weak. Um, mostly they, they offer recommendations. They're, they're not really capable of enforcement outside of very limited circumstances. Circumstances, And with respect to uh, domestic courts, immunities and the lack of standing um, often will impede both access to domestic and international courts. Uh, the UN has said before um, the International Law Commission that it has a lex specialis on how it handles claims. Um, basically, it said that uh, the way we deal with claims is our own model, Um, but actually when you look behind that, you realize that its model is to not deal with claims. So I'm going to give four examples of that. From the peacekeeping context, we have four major uh, different types of issues. There's the issues which relate to the limitation of mandate, where um, Srebrenica, Rwanda, where there's been a failure to act. Uh, which has had horrible consequences. Then there's the scenarios of operational failures such as the Haiti cholera epidemic or the lead poisoning uh, in Kosovo, which led to innumerable de- uh, many deaths um, in Kosovo of Roma, mainly Roma people, um, as a result of neg- negligence. Third, there's the human rights and international humanitarian law abuses in the course of duty, or somewhat in the course of duty. Here, we can think of tortured tortured detainees in Somalia. Uh, We can think of uh, sexual exploitation and abuse, including rape, trafficking, and other abuses. Um, We can also think of military excesses. And fourth category is car accidents and destruction of property. Now, which do you think has been dealt with the best? Car accidents (laughs) and destruction of property. So, essentially, that's been really well handled. So, (laughs) I'm going to leave that out for the moment. Um, We're going to move back to mandate limitations, Rwanda Srebrenica. So, we all know that uh, the failure to, to protect which led to a number of commissions of inquiry, um, apologies, um, Senate reports. Um, Basically, the UN Security Council um, never actually gave the peacekeeping missions the appropriate mandate in order to step up. Whether uh, different troops operating in those circumstances should have done more um, is an open question. And in fact in uh, cases brought in the Netherlands and Belgium, um, both governments were in different contexts seen to be responsible for, uh, in the case of the Dutch, the failure to protect uh, the stronghold at Srebrenica, in the case of the Belgians, the failure to stay and protect the uh, Belgian school in Rwanda when the Belgian troops left um, the people who were there were simply slaughtered Um, so there's Uh, Clearly an issue of attribution, um, what level of of, um, responsibility do the the states have? But nonetheless, even if the states have a certain level of responsibility, I've also argued that uh, the UN as an institution also has responsibility. With respect to these mandate issues, with respect to international peace and security, all the case law has gone in one single direction. Um, which has been that international peace and security is Central, there cannot be any court who can look into these types of questions because in a way it's beyond questioning. Somewhat similar, if one takes an example from a domestic context to a political offences exception where you you cannot look into what the executive is doing, it's inappropriate for a court to, to, to look at that. But of course, the UN Security Council doesn't have the same checks and balances, arguably, that would exist in a domestic context. So my view is that I, I, I really don't see and I don't think the arguments holds, that you cannot have scrutiny of UN Security Council decisions. Second layer is um, the operational failures. Haiti cholera case... Roma lead poisoning. The first line of attack of the United Nations has been in both cases no, we didn't do it, we weren't responsible. It sounds like a very silly line of attack, it's a factual line of attack, but actually it's the most successful. Why? Because there's no access of individuals to a court to challenge that assumption. So the mere lack of access to any sort of uh, legal forum in which to challenge the assertion of the body which is held up to be responsible turns out to be the most effective legal defence. It wasn't us. There's no way to disprove that. Um, the second part of the argument is actually quite interesting and it has to do with the UN Immunities Convention of 1946. Article 29 says that the UN has to provide an alternative mode of settlement when um, it involves disputes of a private law character or uh, disputes involving any official of the United Nations who by reason of his official position enjoys immunity if immunity has not been waived by the Secretary General. So th- for cases involving the United Nations as itself, in its institutional capacity, were really in the first part of that test. Whether or not the dispute is of private law character. So here is why um, when I said the UN did well on uh, car accidents, I was talking about this. Because basically, um, the UN has interpreted private law as car accidents. Um, But these, uh, in Haiti, or... Um, Or in Kosovo, um, are we dealing with private or public law when it comes to uh, failure to take health precautions with respect to latrines? The The UN has argued that this was a fundamental position of policy which shouldn't be subject to any kind of scrutiny. So there's two arguments here. One is that it's a personal injury claim which shouldn't necessarily be deemed as public The second type of argument is that, yes, indeed, it was public, but the fact that the UN Convention doesn't give a specific requirement to create a remedy shouldn't stop the UN from creating a remedy because, actually, the fact that there may be immunity doesn't mean that there's no responsibility. Responsibility is there. There's a need to create a remedy. Um, So you have both of those decisions. Interestingly, the Human Rights um, Advisory Panel in Kosovo just last month, well actually in February, came out with a decision, a damning decision, um, on uh, the violation of UNMIC, of uh, Roma um, rights to health, to life, to torture, um, et cetera, et cetera. It uh, advised uh, the UN to acknowledge this violation of rights and to pay compensation, but the Human Rights Advisory Panel is simply that, an advisory panel. The UN has not paid compensation in any single case um, when it's been recommended to do so by this advisory panel. Um, third line of cases is, as I said, um, torture, individual cases of, of sexual abuse, rape, military excesses. Here, the line of, line of attack has been to focus not on the, uh, the institution as a whole, but on the rogue officials committing horrible Attacks. So there, the UN has recognized the need for individuals to be prosecuted, individual peacekeeper, peacekeepers, but actually when it comes down to it, and we see this with the recent Central African Republic report, the inquiry report, the UN has done very little to ensure that this happens. For a combination of reasons. Um, troop contributing countries have the main uh, responsibility to prosecute, but um, actually the le- legislation in troop contributing countries is usually inadequate. Um, secondly, there, there there's a lot of other um, reasons linked to underreporting, a culture of silence, and the wish for the UN not to rock the boat as to why these cases haven't been properly investigated or prosecuted. Um, but with respect to the issue of the organization itself, here the, uh, the main challenge has been on whether the acts in question are official, uh, official acts or private acts. And here um, the UN has taken a very narrow approach to what may constitute an official act which has meant that um, in in most contexts um, it has deemed uh, these acts not to be subject to its reparation framework. We know from international humanitarian law that at least in terms of um, uh, 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 of uh, international um international conflict that um, there shouldn't be a distinction between the obligation to repair um, whether whether it was a private or a public uh, an an official act or a private act Um, but that hasn't applied into the peacekeeping context so in my view the biggest challenges is access to court uh, finding ways to challenge before an independent body uh, what the UN's uh, first... Um, what, the, what the UN's uh, position is. Um, the second is to strengthen the internal administrative systems so that they can be more independent and could, pr- could provide a more open and fair um, forum where these claims can be addressed. And there's a need to apply standards... Uh, for remedies that relate to the violations that we're talking about not to the type of perpetrator and that would be the start of a solution but certainly not the end Thanks Thank you very much